Hello and welcome to Bible Marathon. We're all about learning how to read the Bible, about spiritual gifts and giving proper defense and explanation for what we believe as Christians. The goal is to progress with joy in the faith and without further ado, let's get into the word. Today we have a very good friend of me and Ernest that is going to be teaching us through, or taking us through this teaching for today. And he has already spoken, see the handsome young man there. Shots when he put on his video, I had to quickly go and show my wife. Maybe <laughs> see Jerry, he has this new glow, you know, this glow that only comes from marriage. Ololade, get your get your miracle. <laughs> No, so I'm like this new glow and everything and then he's the handsome young man there and all and um, he's also recently married right um, he's in the US at the moment oh yes and how many of you here know John Piper if any of you have heard about John Piper so John Piper has a seminary or a school and then Ernest is a master's in divinity so he's he has gone to proper seminary <laughs> and he has a huge heart for God. He has a heart for missions. He has a heart for ethics, you know, theology in Africa, right? He's really big on, you know, theology in Africa. Like um, basically he wants, you know how a lot of times we hear these guys from the US and all that. And he wants it to actually flow out from Africa. So he's very, very passionate about that. He's very passionate about the word of God. And I can say he's my mentor as well. Like a lot of things, and he's been a friend. He's a very fantastic person. And a lot of things I'll just call, oh, Jerry, this, oh, Jerry, that. And believe me, he's a fantastic brother. So let me not um, blow his horn too much before, <laughs> before someone there will be saying, I was going on. And all, but I just want to introduce the house to Jeremiah Ogazi, and I think he's the last child, right? Jerry, you're the last child, right? Oh, yeah, I am <laughs> probably last born. Yeah, <laughs> you know what they say about last born, but let's not go there. So, Jerry, over to you. Yeah, yeah welcome, Jerry. Thank you guys. This is great. This is good. Um, do you guys, so I have my air condition on in the background and I'm directly facing it uh, because it's very hot, but I could turn it off if you guys need to. Do you guys hear me clearly? And are we good? Or is there yes, some background noise? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, Treasure. Um, yeah, Treasure has been a, a good friend. I'm always scared when Treasure has to introduce me because it's like, you know, Treasure is almost an evil man. You know, he's Niger Delta. So he has this whole way of singing praises and stuff. But Treasure has been a blessing to me. And um, Ernest as well has been, yeah, a good friend. And so let me pray for us and then we get into the word. Um Heavenly Father, there is no one else that is worth worshiping. Heavenly Father, there is no one else that is worth gazing upon. We join the psalmist to say that we want to gaze upon your beauty. Um, we are glad when we hear that you have, you have glory. Because, Lord, we were made to see glory. And, Lord, we pray that right now, 
you will have glory for us. Not our glory, but your glory. So we will see glory. We want to see glory. That's better than seeing the future. That's better than all the superpowers that we may imagine. Seeing glory. And so God, all that this, this 30, 40 minutes, 50, however it is, would help us see glory and will help us in the race to see glory someday when you return. Because that's what we were made for. So come be with us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes. So this is exciting. Um, um I love the the unspotted thing. And um, I have a lot of screens. <laughs> and I think you guys are used to that. NS is the most technological guy I know. So, but I'm very skeptical about technology. So um, and we can talk about that in the after party if there is one. But I have screens and I might be looking here and there, but you guys have my attention. Um I'm not, and it's not ESPN or MBA stuff. Like I'm looking, so this is a joy. Um, I, I want to start by um just saying briefly something to summarize what I think is the a, a word that can capture a lot of the stuff that the Book of James is talking about. So um, I'm sure we've been about holiness, and today um we're going into James, but um. Oh, wow. I lost you guys. You guys still see me? Hear me? I don't know what yes, just happened. Yes, we can. Sorry, yes, I, we can. I stopped okay. sharing my screen. Okay. Maybe that was why. Okay. I was like, wow, what happened? Um, and so I would like us to, I just want to say a word. And I don't know, some of you might be taking notes. So um, if you really need all these notes, I can email it to you, um, everything I'm saying. But um. I, I want to take a, a word that I think encapsulates James. And I think the, the word is the word simplicity. Simplicity versus that. When I mean simplicity, I mean simplicity that would be the opposite of duplicity. Now, duplicity, it has something to do with being dubious, right? So, and I think James is really after Christians cultivating, harnessing simplicity. Now, I will give you three examples to prove it, but you can, if you want to read the book of James, you can read it probably in 17 minutes. It's a 17 minute read. And if you read it later on, just think of that term, simplicity as opposed to duplicity. So let me give you an example. Examples. First of all, James says he wants people to have a simple faith that experiences joy in the midst of trial, as opposed to what? The double-minded. So don't be dubious, duplicitous, but be simple. So that's a theme James develops. Second thing, he wants people to use their tongue for a simple and a single-minded aim to bless. Don't use your tongue to curse. That's in James chapter three. So that's what? Duplicity. So these are two examples. The first example I gave is James 1, 2 to 8, where James talks about counted joy if you experience trials and tribulations. Um, let no one who is tempted say he's tempted from God because God does not tempt anyone. And then he goes on to talk about, but if you lack anything, ask God, he gives wisdom without reproach. Do not be double-minded. The double-minded man is like a waves tossed by the sea. So that's the first example. The second example is James 3, 7 to 12, where he's talking all about um. The, the tongue and not he wants the tongue to be simple not double not duplicitous another example is the poor james chapter 5 he talks about the poor who should boast in their exaltation 
and he says that you poor people don't worry god is going to judge the rich who are double-minded dubious because they what they withhold the wages of the poor so instead of them to bless you guys they are withholding the wages so those are just three examples and you can go and find more examples for yourself there are examples all over the place but when we think of james we think of what simplicity single-mindedness as opposed to what duplicity double-mindedness dubiousness and in the various forms now where we are is james chapter 1 verse 23 to 27 and i'll just read that and you could post the text in the group chat as well and um that would be great but james chapter 1 verse 23 to 27 and it says for if someone merely listens to the message and does not leave it out he's like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror I think, let me even read from the one on the screen. So that'll be good. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in whatever he does. 26, um, next verse. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, bridle, bridle, I don't know how to say that, but I'll say bridle, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world that's where we get the phrase unspotted for the series that we're looking at and so now the main command in this passage is definitely from verse 22 so it's actually if you go to verse 22 the main command if i were divided it out i've read 22 to 27 but the main command is be doers of the word um James 1.22, not 2.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. So this is the main command. That's where James actually is getting at. Everything that we've read about liberty, gazing, the man who forgets, everything is to support this command, be doers of the word. Now, I want to do something very briefly. I just have two questions I'm answering. The first question I want to answer is, what does the Old Testament have to say about James 1, 22 to 27? So what does the Old Testament have to say in us understanding this passage? And two, what are some practical ways that we can leave out what I'm calling a delightful religiosity? I know the people say, oh, it's not good to be religious. I'm tired of religiosity. I prefer Christianity. But I think James wants us to live a pure delightful religiosity i want us to go out here and be religious in a good way so first question how does the old testament shed light on this text the first thing i want you to do is i want you to notice that james relies on two metaphors in this passage the first metaphor occurs in verse 26 where he talks about not bridling the tongue or he talks about the man who does not bridle his tongue and now if you have your bibles you could go to Isaiah 30, 
verse 27 to 30. We're going to look at this, this language of bridle. Where did James get this bridle idea from? Um, I'll look at two passages, and I think it'll be very, very insightful and helpful for us to understand why James is borrowing the metaphor. So in Isaiah 30, I'll just give the, the quick background. Isaiah 30, what, 27 verse, Isaiah 30, 27 verse 30 is the place you should have in your Bible, but I'll give you a brief summary of Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, God is saying, Egypt is not your savior. Israel, you guys are looking to Egypt. Egypt has horses. Egypt has all of this. You guys are no longer following me. are no longer trusting me. You are rebellious. And instead, you are hoping in Egypt to save you from my judgment. But instead, you are supposed to return to me. And then God, after saying this, he now promises judgment on the nation. And this is what it says. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. 28. His breath like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. We'll end here. A bridle in the jaws of the people. Who is the person who is going to put this bridle on the nations? It will be God. God is actually going to put this bridle, but it's a bridle of judgment this time. And it's actually going to lead the nations into judgment. So the bridle from the Old Testament, another passage, if you had, for those of you taking notes, is Proverbs 26, verse 3. Let's look at that. Um, it's really short. But the whole idea of the bridle is that the bridle brings judgment and restraint on that which is rebellious. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. So in summary... When we are talking about the bridle, the bridle is an instrument of restraint, of judgment, and of discipline, especially on the nations. Because we've seen Isaiah 30, and that's one of the more um, pronounced passages where God is the one said to bring a bridle. So let's go back to James now, and we say, how does this make sense in James? Um, this is a sentence that I have that I think is going to be very helpful um, for us to, to look at, we'll look at various parts of this sentence. But what James is doing here is that James is saying that the man who does not bridle his tongue is not truly religious. And that means, what does bridle mean? Bridle reminds us of God's judgment upon the nations. That means two things, that the tongue is like the nations. James 3 will tell us how the tongue is a wildfire. James even calls it, the tongue is like a fire from hell. So the tongue is like the nations. And so James is saying that the man who doesn't have an awareness of God's riddle, God's restraint, God's judgment, God's discipline over nations, over wickedness, is the man who will talk carelessly. And so because he doesn't have God's riddle, he will talk carelessly. Now, this is very important because I believe that one of the things in the background to James is that the people of God were experiencing a lot of oppression. So the poor people were being oppressed by the rich. The, the, the people who had nothing were being oppressed by those who had a lot. So there was a lot of favoritism and oppression. And there were people that really thought the way to go about this oppression was we were going to begin to attack. We're going to begin to fight with our words. We're going to fight back. We're going to be very 
at James chapter 4 actually talks about people quarreling and striving and stuff like that in James chapter 4. And so James here, exactly, James 4 verse 1, wars and all this. James here, by using the word bridle, anyone who understands the Old Testament will understand that he's saying, hey, remember that God is the one that will bridle the nations. You are supposed to bridle your tongue. You remember, you bridle your tongue when you remember God's judgment, that there is a God that judges. So you don't have to lash out with your tongue. You don't have to lash out with your words because you have an awareness of God's judgment and knowing that God is going to judge the nations. So that's the first thing we'll look at, the bridle and this passage. The second thing that I want to look at real quick is the metaphor of what? Gazing at a mirror. Where is James getting the gazing at the mirror from? Now, James talks about the man who, in verse 25, who looks and then he forgets. So he looks at a mirror, he sees its face, and then, sorry, 24, um, he, he looks into the, the mirror um, and immediately goes away and he forgets what kind of man he is. I think this is very important for us to understand the context and the background. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament. James is one of the earliest books, so I really think going back to the Old Testament, understanding how James is thinking in terms of the Old Testament, where is he getting these metaphors from? Now, in the Old Testament, we don't have time to go there, but you can take my, um, you can check Exodus chapter 30. Uh, Exodus 30 really gets into it, um, especially verses um, 17 and 18, and Exodus 38, verse 1 to 8 also gets into it. But I'll explain. In Exodus 30, verse 17, God commands Moses that he's going to build um, an artifact. In verse 18, he says that, I want you to make a lava of bronze, and you will also make the base of bronze, and it will be for washing. And notice, this lava is going to be between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and there will be water in it. Now, you guys are like, oh, man, these guys, what does this have to do with mirrors? What does this have, what is James talking about? So, this um, instrument was a very important instrument because when you are coming as a priest, you need to be clean. And so there was a lava of bronze with water and the prince will look at his face in the water, clean up. He will look at the hand, clean up. And then he's able to go in and offer sacrifices. And so some people even say that when Nadab and Abihu were killed, they offered strange fire because some people say they were drunk. Some people say they were not ritually clean from this lava. And so, but the interesting thing is this, what does the lava of washing, of cleaning before worship, what does it have to do with mirror? The truth is, if you go to Exodus 38 verse eight, this lava of bronze was made from the mirrors of women. So the women in Israel actually did, um, took all their bronze and everything, and they actually were the ones who began to to give it. So the women are the ones that actually give the bronze mirrors. And now this is one of the few occurrences of mirrors in actually the Old Testament. Like if you search mirrors, this is one of the few occurrences. I'll tell you the other occurrence. But the mirror was a way of women participating in helping the priests be clean and the priests to pay attention so that they can be beautiful before they go in and intercede for the people. Right now, this is very interesting. When God says he's going to judge Israel in the book of Isaiah, 
one of the things he says he's going to do in judging Israel in the book of Isaiah is in Isaiah 3 verse 22. And he says he will actually take away the mirrors of the women, which is very interesting. The, the loss of the mirrors of the women is a metaphor for the loss of what? The word of God, of the loss of intercession and ritual cleanliness in Israel. Now, I want to just say this as an aside. A lot of times, women don't understand the way the Old Testament talks about the role that women have to have. Women were not priests in the Old Testament. They were not priests. But by them participating in bringing their offering and in preparing the lava of, wash, of, of, of washing, what they did was they were equipping the priests in ministry. So we see that again and again. Same thing in the time of Jesus. The women were part of the people that what? Equipped the apostles to discern. They were the ones that went to announce the resurrection. To say, hey, 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 don't forget what the master says. They were not the apostles. They were not the priests. But they were always there giving their gifts and their offerings to remind men of their high calling. That's why throughout the Old Testament, if you want to know a bad king, the bad king is the king who marries a bad wife. Because it's the wife that will tell the king how to worship many times. When Solomon married women, they led his heart astray. So for women, this is a very, very high calling. It's not just about, I don't want to get very controversial, but I believe that one of the ways women influence the church is by encouraging, discipling their children and encouraging discernment not necessarily for being pastors and preaching. Now, I don't want to get into that, but I just wanted to, to show that here we see how women are the ones encouraging worship, but they are doing it by dedicating their mirrors. I think of how sacrificial it is for a woman to give her mirror <laughs> as a gift. <laughs> and they all gathered their mirrors and gave it, but the mirror was to help the priest look at their faces and be clean. So now that we have seen this Old Testament background of mirrors, Let's go back to James and say, what, and ask, what is James doing when he talks about the man who looks into the mirror and forgets his face? So in James, James is saying, the man observing his face and immediately goes away and forgets. He observes it in a mirror. The mirror is a picture of the word of God. Verse 25 actually tells us that the mirror is actually supposed to be a picture of the law of liberty. What is this law of liberty? Some people say it's the Ten Commandments. Some people say it's this. Some people say it's um, the law of Christ, where Jesus Christ said in John 15, a new law I give you, um, love one another. Some people say it's the whole Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. Some people say it's just the first five books. But I would say that this law of liberty, there are three things we know about it. One, it is perfect, meaning it is complete. Two, it is law, meaning it actually involves commands. Three, it has liberty, meaning it's supposed to free us, not take us into bondage. And then four, it demands that we continue in it, meaning it's not easy. You have to persevere. When we put this together, something that is complete, that is command, that liberates us, and at the same time, we're supposed to continue in it. I submit to you that I think this law of liberty is the Sermon on the Mount. Because... It is Jesus Christ's understanding of the law. 
So the, this law of liberty is actually not just the Old Testament law, but the Old Testament law explained by Christ. Because it's when the Old Testament law is explained by Christ, Matthew 5 to 7, that we actually experience liberty. And so sometimes when you think of your faith, when you think of yourself as a Christian, do you think of yourself as someone who is called to embrace and pursue and delight in the perfect law of liberty? Or do you just think of yourself as, well, I'm saved by grace alone and faith alone. Those are good. But also we are called to continue in the law of liberty. And so I'll encourage you, spend time meditating on the Sermon on the Mount. Spend time thinking of Matthew 5 to 8. It's revolutionary. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are if someone takes your coat, walk with him in mile. Like it's amazing how what Jesus Christ does in really exposing us to the beauty of the law. So now... We can now ask, put all this together. James is teaching that true religion is a religion that bridles its, its tongue, meaning it's aware of the judgment of God, and it doesn't just lash out. True religion is also a religion that what gazes at the mirror of the law of liberty. Just the same way the priests were gazing in the water before they go to worship, we gaze at the mirror of liberty. and. When we rise up, what do we go and do? We go and intercede. How do we intercede? The last verse tells us, we take care of widows, we take care of the orphans, and we stay unspotted from the world. The way of staying unspotted has to come through gazing at the mirror of Christ and his teaching. Now, my question is, what kind of gazing is this? Is it me just having my Bible devotions? Or is it me also gazing together with the community? And the truth about this is this. The lava in the Old Testament that was made from the mirrors was for all the priests. It wasn't just Aaron will not just go and say, I have my own lava in my room and I wash myself. My wife gave me a mirror. I will look. No, <laughs> you will get judged. You actually have to come into the community and then look at the mirror in the water of the lava of cleansing, and then you worship. And so even the idea of gazing, when you read this text and you are seeing the man who looks, it's, it's a plural man. It's a plural man. It's the man as a community. So this is very important. We have to look together at God's word in community. Community and the church is so crucial for us understanding what the word of God is. We have to come together, not just even in BMG, but you'll be part of a local church that will be committed to gazing together at the mirror of the word of God. And, and that is how we gaze and we actually continue gazing together. So I want to finally say that we've answered that question. How does the Old Testament shed light? I think I've tried to show how the bridle I've tried to show how the mirror and all those themes are actually coming from James' understanding of the Old Testament. And now I now want to ask my last question, how can we be good religious people? How can we be religious people? I'll summarize it in three things. We're religious people when we have controlled speech, a speech that is guarded and aware of God's judgment. Two, we are religious people when we have a communal gaze we look together at Christ in community. We're not just looking. We're looking, we're saying, how is, how is, bro, I did, I did, I'm looking now at the word of God. How is Victoria 
looking. We're looking together, but we're looking to have an awareness that everyone, I hope she's still looking. I hope Treasure is not distracted now. I hope he's still looking at this mirror. I hope he's not going to another well to look at another lava. I hope he's still at this one. That's the kind of gaze that God invites us to. When the law was given, it was given to Israel as a community. When Jesus was on the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke to what? The disciples. So we always look as a community. Controlled speech, a communal looking at the word. And then the third is what? We have a charitable heart. A charitable heart that gives good gifts to orphans, to widows. Now, how does all this connect with the history of what the people of James were going through? I told you that James occurred at a time when the people were oppressed by the rich and some people wanted to revolt politically and even begin to fight and start a war. And so some of us are in Nigeria where we have a decimated political system. What are we going to do? They are killing people in the north. Do we now begin to arm ourselves and shoot back? That's a complicated topic that I can get into in theological ethics, which I'm passionate about. But that's a life question. Some of you are in the UK and you feel discouraged. What's going on there? You don't feel like a Christian at work. We all have this different context. But the truth about it is this. The gospel is very political. The gospel is Jesus' king. The gospel is very political. And so when James is actually talking about the obedience of these people, the religion of these people, he's actually talking about not just some private religion where you're just inside speaking in tongues, but a religion that is actually public where you are taking care of widows. But this is the difference. Christianity and religion, the, Christ, the religion that delights God in Christianity is the religion that takes politics seriously, not from looking up to the people in power, but from showing that Jesus Christ has died and has solidarity for the people not in power. We don't start a revolution because the revolution has already started. Jesus already died 2,000 years ago. And what has he done? He has actually said, that's why Matthew 5 is so important. He has actually said that it is the poor that are blessed. Right now, it looks as if that it is the wealthy that are blessed. That's by wealthy, I mean the, the, the political class, those who control all the billions and all that, the corrupt. But Jesus has actually said, no, I have brought a new regime and it is actually the poor that are blessed. So Christianity, our controlled speech, our communal gazing, our charitable acts is all a political program of showing that Jesus Christ has solidarity with the outcasts of society. It's not a political program of showing that we have to get the power for us to begin to be influential. And once we begin to understand this, we begin to understand the religion that delights God. That is the religion that delights God, that takes faith seriously, looking at the word seriously, politics seriously, but does it from bottom up, not from up to bottom does it in community, not in isolation, and does it with what? With an awareness of God's judgment of the nations, not with an anger to go and inflict our own judgment. So I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had with your word. There's so much we can get into, but Lord, I pray. I pray that we will not be like Balaam. Balaam is the man who saw in the mirror and immediately forgot. 
He heard you, but immediately forgot. He kept finding ways to twist your word till he could get greed, at, sorry, he could get material wealth from the kings of the world. But Lord, we pray that instead of Balaam, who saw and forgot, we want to be like Moses, who went up and continued looking, who continued looking in community. Moses, when he went up to receive the law, he didn't just go alone, he took a community, 70 elders. He took his brother Aaron. Lord, we pray that we would be like Moses, going up together in community to look at your word till our face is shining with the light of Christ. And then when we have seen him, we would go out into the poor and announce the good news, the political good news that Jesus Christ is for the poor, for the outcast. And Lord, may it be that through us, you will bring revival and transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, so first of all, um, before um, Jerry goes, I want to ask, does anyone have any questions for him based on what was taught today? Yeah. Any questions? It was beautiful. A very beautiful teaching. God bless you. Thank you. Praise God for that. You had mentioned something that sparked my curiosity. Talking about Christianity in the workplace. I mean, you made a passing comment. Yeah. So I want to ask you to expound on it. What do you mean? You mentioned that people have different opinion of what it should look like, right? Something along those lines. Yeah. I want you to... Yeah, explain further what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, so actually thinking about James and studying James, um, part of the reason why James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, which he quotes, is that um, there was a system there that was in, it was a marketplace where the, the rich were very wealthy and they would deprive the poor of their salary and then the poor will have to go and borrow money. And sometimes in borrowing money, they will have to promise but they might be promising, knowing that ah, this rich person will not actually pay me. And they're like, but I'm just going to promise either way. And so I will get this money so that I can take care of my family, even though I know that I may not be able to pay at this time because this rich person is owing me. So they rationalized it. And so um, I think that's an example, just even an Old Testament term about people saying, what is the ethics that you're going to use in the marketplace? <laughs> like, is it ethically wrong for a poor person to go? and borrow money when he's being owed by somebody, but having to kind of like lie and rationalize and he doesn't pay back that money. And so that was a life question that the people in dreams were looking at. And so I feel like we have that challenge too in different ways, but we have the challenge in the marketplace. So there is the ethics for instance, maybe you are a programmer, there is the ethics of how much of my Christianity should I influence what I'm doing on Google when I know that this technology is actually wrong. And you have people resign from Facebook, not Christians, that have said, I, I just couldn't stand for this anymore because I can't publish research after research that Instagram hurts girls from 13 to 19. And Zuckerberg is just all there wearing Oculus and say, oh, the future is bright. <laughs> and you're like, no, I can't, I'm out of here. And so increasingly we're facing that conflict between ethics and the marketplace. And it shows up in various areas. One of the areas too that will show up in the Marketplace is beginning to try to control speech. So 
Do you refer to the person as pronoun he, him, she, ha, they? Like there's all of this. And so this is a chaos that, but I think what James is trying to say is that whatever we do, we can't negotiate on these three things. One, that our speech has to be controlled by an awareness of God's judgment of the nations. No matter how it is, there is no excuse for a Christian saying, I'm going to lash out and I'm going to effect some way of causing a revolution right now on Facebook, get all the guys to protest and say, oh, council, council, whoever it is, Lady Gaga, let her not come to Facebook. Like, we're we not going to do that in such a way that we want to actually draw. There's a place for protest. I'm not, I'm not talking about pacifism, but I'm just saying that whatever we are doing, even if we're going to protest, we are protesting with an awareness that God has already judged. He has already judged sin on the cross and he will judge everyone according to their deeds. So we have an awareness of the judgment of God that is controlling our tongue. And I feel like we're losing this because many people are tired. They don't have power and they feel like I need to do something to bring about this judgment now. I mean, if you're in America or anywhere, there's a phrase, no justice, no peace. What do we want? Justice now. And James is saying, hey guys, justice has been enacted on the cross. This injustice you see is not as real as the justice of the cross. It's like, it is revolutionary to actually see that, the, that's the thing about Christianity, this dead person that you see, if he died in Christ, he's more alive than you. And we don't get that. We don't get that, that this injustice that we see is not as real as the justice and the bliss that we have. So James is just saying, whatever we can debate on all the methodologies, whether you should resign from Facebook or stuff, but at least whatever we're doing, we're doing it with an awareness that God is judge. And then, so that was where I was coming at, at the ethics of the of the marketplace and the competing things. But it's a very hard question um, to, to look at. Yeah, that's tough. Um, Lola, I hope I was able to answer your question. Yes, perfectly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lola. Yeah. Does anyone have any other question? Yeah, you said something that the gospel is political, like, but it was so quick and... And like you are, you are rushing. I'm, I'm really feeling this, but I'm, I'm struggling to. But can you just say something about what you mean by the gospel is very political? And you said something like it's from. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, so the gospel. Jerry, did you hear him or should I? Yes, I did. I did. I did. I, I heard him. Um. So this is. This is I. I, I need um. When we think of the gospel, um, I think that we have been raised to think of the gospel primarily as Jesus Christ died and saved sinners. And I think there is a truth to that. However, I want to say that in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ was saving sinners. Paul actually talks about in 1 Corinthians that the rock that he drank from was Christ. So even in the Old Testament, and we also know that Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. So there was a way where they were seeing it, seeing it, even though seeing it to the future, but they had that faith. So Jesus Christ saved Rahab, like, like Jesus Christ saved and turned Gentiles, like Jonah went to Nineveh and the whole city got saved. I think what is really crucial, I think that is at the heart of the gospel is what is new in the New Testament, what actually is new? It is this truth that Jesus Christ is now enthroned as king over the world, as the son of God and the son of David. There had been promises to David that he will have a son that will rule over the world. 
And so that was a hope. Yes, God was saving sinners. Yes, people were repenting. Yes, people experienced it. But the thing that really did change was Jesus Christ announced the kingdom of God is now here. And so Jesus Christ is king. So that announcement, I think, once you understand that, you see why Luke, for instance, wrote the way he did. Because Luke pays attention to the way Jesus Christ was born how that was connected with the Roman um, census and stuff like that. And so there is a lot of political undertones that Luke at least has. And even the, even the, this is from church history, even the reason why Christians were persecuted was Christians in the church refused to say Caesar is king. Instead, they wanted to say Jesus is king. They were willing to say Caesar is a ruler, but they were not willing to say Caesar is king because they really believed that the king. And that's why when Jesus rose from the grave, the disciples were like, oh, oh, boy, 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 when is the kingdom? Are we going to start ruling right now and stuff like that? And Jesus Christ says, I'm already reigning, but right now what you guys need to do is you need to go with the spirit and announce that. This is not the time for me to begin to enact a physical throne. I'm already reigning. I've already conquered death. I'm already enthroned as the king over the world, but go and announce it. And it's through the announcement that you will create a community around me. So when I mean the gospel is very political, I mean in simple, Jesus is king, not Caesar. Jesus is king, not whoever you want to, not Mao, not Putin, that at the core. And every time Christianity comes, Christianity comes in tension, People are persecuting us for that fact that we say Jesus is king and he's going to bind our conscience. Nobody minds if you say, I'm just going to read my Bible and pray. In so far as, even in Saudi Arabia, they don't mind you just reading your Bible and pray. Where you begin to go around and say, hey, I have an announcement. Jesus is king, not Mohammed. Then your head is cut off. So, that's what I'm trying to say, that the gospel is very political, meaning the gospel challenges how the kings of this world are trying to control the conscience. And the gospel says, no, 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 we have a king who controls our conscience, who binds our heart. And once you begin to say that, you get into trouble with the political rulers. So that, that was where I was, I was trying to, to get at. Yeah, thanks. All right, thank you. Um... So any other questions? We have we have a lot of time for questions today. Um, yeah, so I'm sorry, I was rushing. I was rushing so we could have time for questions. I, I did. Okay. Vicky, there's a question in the chat. Oh, okay. Question from Praise. Please, can you also for can you also further expound on what you think the law of liberty is? Yes, so I, I think I rushed through that. Um, and I, I think the I think the law of liberty is reading the old is the law of the old testament, but interpreted through Jesus Christ. And I feel the simplest way to get at what that law contains is by studying the Sermon on the Mount and studying the commands of Jesus Christ. So the law of liberty is, because the law of Moses 
had some things that brought judgment in it. So there's a ceremonial aspect of the law of Moses. There is the um, there is the political aspect of the law of Moses that you know might involve you know cutting up people, you know beheading and stuff like that. You know things like that. Not beheaded. Beheading is not in the Old Testament, but stoning is. So there is a political aspect that we need to you know. Then there's the moral aspect, the Ten Commandments. That's you know just very clear. But I feel like the Sermon on the Mount is a way of taking the whole law, reading it through Christ, and then giving it to us now in a way that it liberates us, right? And so that's what I would say the law of liberty is, is the sermon, it's the law, is the Old Testament read through Jesus and what Jesus Christ has told us that he has commanded us to do. Um, that's That's a... That is um one. Yeah, if you would, I, I do want to say something to um that just to clarify something to about my um I had a bit of passive comment about women, so I want to clarify that because I really think it's very important. I think that um it's very crucial that we understand the the way we have been given, yeah, we the way. I would just put it the dance of power. And many people will tell you that the Old Testament is a very misogynistic book. And they will tell you that the Old Testament, you know, suppresses women and, and things like that. And I think it's a very, it's a question that we have to wrestle with. Um, there is definitely a shift in the New Testament as regards women. Um, and I think that primary shift is the ability of women to speak in the assembly as prophetesses. First Corinthians 14 talks about that. Um, I don't want to get into the bog down debate of women, should women be pastors? I, we can do that to the after party. But that, that ability to prophesy is what Moses looked forward to in Numbers 11 and was fulfilled in Acts 2 where everybody is just able to speak God's word and, and all that. Um, in the Old Testament, the woman may not just even be able to teach her children. She could teach her children, but she would have to still send her children to a school for training. But in the New Testament, women are equipped to teach their children to raise and things like that. But I also want to say that there are some, there are still some continuities. For instance, every time there is a new move in God's redemptive story, it always usually starts with women Either women not being able to give birth and there's a miracle of stuff. And so one of the ways that we actually know that Luke is writing scripture is when Luke starts the story of Luke, everything he does in Luke 1 to 4 is the same thing that happened in 1 Samuel. So Luke is eventually copying 1 Samuel in such a way that he's trying to say, this story is a story that continues the story of first Samuel. In Luke, we have an Anna. We have Hannah. In Luke, we have the story of somebody prophesying. Mary prophesies after she gives birth. Elizabeth prophesies after she, she gives birth, or even before she gives birth. Um, and so we have that as well with Hannah prophesying. In Luke, we have a kind of like a drought of the word of God. People are looking for the word of God. We have that as well in First Samuel. So I'm just trying to say that when we think of the Bible, we should be very careful 
to not just go to the Old Testament and say, oh, see the way he's treating women. No, we have to read deeper and we have to read closely to begin to see those waves and those patterns. And so, um, and I could spend more time talking about this, but I, I think that, that that plays out as well, even into history. Um, a lot of the huge movements that have come across in the world, for instance, have come across either for good or for bad with women um, making some huge shifts in, in culture and stuff like that. Um, when women make shifts in culture, the impact is usually multi-generational. When men make shifts in culture, the impact is usually just on themselves and the dad. Um, and so those are just things that we, we can trace um, through, through scripture. And so I wanted to say that just, just as, a, as a way of pushing back against the feminism and also the way that people don't understand the Old Testament. So. All right. We can still take two more questions before we um, call it today. So do we have any other questions? Um, by the way, Jerry, you said you were going to share your um, notes. So I'd really appreciate that. I'll, I'll reach out to you through your your meals so you can just forward it to yeah yeah that would be i'll be excited to do that um yeah all right in the absence of any question i'm assuming there's no more question on right, let me say one more thing just real quick okay. i also wanted the way i structured this i also wanted to it to be an encouragement that when we read the bible we should really take the old testament seriously if you haven't got to that by now um, I, I really think it's very good um, to ask questions like, is there an Old Testament example that will explain what James is getting at? Is there an Old Testament, is there a word or a metaphor that he's getting from the Old Testament? What's this word about brittle mirrors? And just doing a word search and like, hey, and then you begin to pay attention to all the mirrors and all the the language of Brito, I think is just so important. And this is Bible Marathon. You guys are interested in learning the word and just having a heart for scripture. I think doing this would open so many connections um, because I could have just come to Brito and just say, well, that's something they put in horse's mouth and it means self-control. But when you understand it in Isaiah about it being judgment on the nations, that now explains that, you know, James, and when you read the book of James and see how, all these people are fighting and there's war, you begin to say, okay, there is something about people not, people lost in after judgment and not trusting God's judgment that God actually has judgment of the nations. Another fun one that I didn't really get to was to, I, I mentioned it in my prayer, but was to show how I really think Balaam is just an example of someone who looks and forgets, who looks and doesn't take that seriously. And it's interesting that Balaam has this donkey and he's going in disobedience to God's word. But even though he has a bridle on the donkey's mouth, the donkey refuses to obey Balaam because Balaam has refused to let God put a bridle over his tongue. And so that, that pattern of the donkey actually being more righteous than Balaam and saying, I'm not going to submit to my master's unjust bridle because my master is not submitting to God's bridle. 
And so that was just something um, that I wanted to really emphasize, reading the Old Testament, looking for Old Testament examples, look coming at it from, from different angles. Um, I, I think it's something that I think will be helped in our Bible study by, by really paying attention to seeing, to seeing that. So that was just, um, that was just um, something. And I would say there are so many, um, so many, read the book of James and read the, the story of Balaam and just have fun, see connections, just have fun. I won't tell you all the connections, but there are other connections that I've seen. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the connection of what Balaam is trying to do with his tongue is blessing, but at the same time, he wants to curse and that and how James uses that later on about from the same tongue, you bless and then from the same tongue, you curse. Just so many fun, exciting connections that you should just go and explore and have fun with. So yeah, I'm done. Yeah, all right. Thank you so much. Um, let's all unmute ourselves and say thank you to Jeremiah. Thank you so so much, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. We're so grateful for today's session. Like it was very enlightening. And um thank you. Thank you very much for taking our time to you know teach us on this topic. Uh Lady, please can you pray for us? Just run up everything. Sorry, I put you on the spot. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Heavenly Lord and Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for what we've learned. We thank you for Jeremiah. We thank you for the wisdom that you've given him to share your knowledge with us. Father, we pray that we are not just hearers of your word. We want to be able to look into your perfect law of liberty and learn from it and become better persons. We pray that you give us the grace to be like you. We pray that you give us the strength to hold on to your word and to allow it to transform our lives. Father, we commit the rest of our activities into your hands. We pray that you be with us, that you go before us. For those who are going to bed, we pray that their week is blessed. They will sleep well, wake up healthy, heal strong. We just want to say thank you for loving us. And we love you too. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey there, so we've come to the end of this teaching session and we hope it was for you a teaching and an enlightening moment. We have so many other topics on our podcast that range from spiritual gifts to charisma to interpreting the Bible world and so many others. If you'd like to listen to any one of them, just look through our podcast catalog and find the topic that you'd love to learn. If you'd like to join us Sunday live on MixLR or on Zoom, all you need to do is go to our website, which is bit.ly forward slash bmg live 4 that's the number 4 or you can look in the description and you will find the link to the website there we hope you have a blessed week and continue to grow and progress with joy in your faith